Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Jason Theobald in the house. Jason, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. We've got Dr. Bill Campbell from USF in the house. Bill, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. This is one of my favorite podcasts. So this is kind of awkward. We are recording this with a bunch of people staring at us live um, without a house mic. So we're doing this on the laptop. Audio might be off a little bit for our listeners later on down the road. If you're driving in your car listening to this, uh, just bear with us because we may have to repeat some questions twice. But this will be good content. Jason and I like to release as much of this stuff on a Q&A format as we can. So we got Jason Wells with the microphone. He's going to be going around and getting questions from the audience. If you've got one, who's first here? Go ahead. What's your question? Okay, what are the what are our thoughts on protein fasting? Be more be more specific. So just protein only, and is your is your macro like no carbs, no fats, or what? But protein is the main macro, right? Of making up the five hundred. No. No. So. Get, so, like, give us give us an example. Oh, and protein's very low. Ooh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't know a whole lot about it. I'll be honest with you, but just getting the information that we got from you, um, it's not something that I would use a lot or in any way, shape, or form to build muscle or retain muscle. I could think that if you have gut issues with people and it's really bad, like, say, someone had gastro 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 paresis. There you go. <laughs> I kept going the wrong way. So if they had that, it's a really tough situation where the motility in the gut isn't working at all. Um, maybe something like that would help because protein is very hard to digest. And so in that situation, that would help, I think, in getting them some sort of nutrients, but not over bombarding the, the stomach because that's what you got to worry about with that condition. Um, but other than that, um, I, it's, it's not really kind of anything that I would set up and, and, and anything that I use with my people at, at, at all. And I, and I try to help a lot of different functional issues. I just haven't really ever employed it. The only thing I would say is um, protein is not something I would drop down low. I would switch them to more shakes because that's easier on digestion. Um, I've done that with quite a few people just to help with digestion, um, but I'd rather see someone keep protein up, the number one thing that they keep up, and go to more shakes. Uh, Jason Wells is standing here right here with me. Um, he has digestion issues pop up from time to time, and what do we do? We go to shakes for a little bit. Clears that up, and he's right back on track. So does that kind of answer your question a little bit? I, I think, Bill, with what you talked about earlier with seeing uh, muscle loss right. and breakdown, that's probably a spot where you wouldn't want to drop protein, right? Yeah, and just to clarify, we're talking about a healthy person that's just choosing to have low protein in their life. Is that the context? Yeah, well, I actually did it um, during the last few weeks of one of my cuts, but only for, it was only for like three days straight. Three days total? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think in three days you're gonna, it's gonna be something that's gonna manifest with but I think for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, then, then, I mean, it still wouldn't be something that I would program unless there was a reason. Right. And in general, yes, it's, um, I, I look at this as kind of like a, a high protein lifestyle, the, the, what I call the life, the, the physique lifestyle. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I just can't think of a reason why I would, would implement it. So I actually have a, a better way to articulate what I was thinking, um, especially during a cut and especially towards the end. Jason, if you would talk about the opposite, talk about protein veggie days because you implement those. And I think that is going to be a better alternative since someone's doing it in a cut versus dropping protein real low and getting most of the macros from carbs and fats. Talk about protein veggie days because well, yeah. those are. Yeah, I mean, towards the end, I mean, you, you want to get fats, fats low and it's, it's hormonally uh, a shit storm but if someone needs to get leaner 
and their stubborn body parts, I will basically take their diet, pull any carbohydrates, pull any fats, have them eat the protein source and say fill in those other areas with one to two cups of greens. And we'll just run those three to four days, maybe then a refeed. Um, so that's kind of what, what I do with a, with a protein veggie day. We can hop in and out of it very quick without having to do too much to the diet. Um, I'd be curious, like, why, what was your coach's reasoning that deep into a cut to use it? I mean, I saw your stage picks. You looked good. So it obviously wasn't detrimental. I'm just curious what their reasoning was because uh, maybe something I can learn. Oh, okay. Well, what did you think of it? Were you starving? Um, the first day, I was good. The second two days, I could definitely, I was hungry. I could definitely, I did have a lot of... A lot of brain fog? A brain fog. Yeah. I mean, without the protein getting to the brain, yeah. I definitely hit second day. Okay. All right. So it was more of an experiment. Yes. Okay. Did he give you context of what he would use it for or no? Is there a re does he give you the good reason? Um, the less deficit, and then um, the, the body sees ketosis and wants to make it into sugar without So it's it's a it's a true almost keto setup where protein is very low, um, only maybe twenty percent. I I have ran keto that way where it's like about twenty percent of the intake, yeah, and that's a true keto diet, not the bro type, and that's built really so that you're not churning over that protein and converting it to glucose uh, via gluconeogenesis and then you're getting into ketosis really fast so if he had the fats at like 80 and your protein was only 80 I might say okay that that makes sense I was thinking we were talking about like no protein in the diet at all and so that term protein fasting or whatever I really didn't know it but it sounds more like a true keto setup and I have used that for a, actually a lot of my endomorphic people not someone who's ectomorphic like you, but maybe if you have blood sugar issues or he just wants to reset you hard, that diet would certainly do it and get your insulin sensitivity really good before you start the cut. So that's probably what he's doing. So that, that helps give context to everyone else and it helps me now too. So. Yeah, it was uh, below 15 grams. Of protein? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, I, I've never done that, that low. So I, I don't know. Uh, why you would need to go that low. You could still get the benefit, I think, from 20% intake of protein, 70% yeah. fat, a little bit of trace carbs, and, and get into ketosis really quickly and yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. So. For, for physique athletes, like you don't, you, you want to keep those aminos in there because in the absence, you're going you're gonna to break down muscle tissue. So three days is short, but protein's not going to get in the way unless it's too high. That's the only time that I ever see protein get in the way of a diet if it's too high and then it's turned over and used for fuel. It's not an efficient fuel source at all. Protein's not, like that process is not efficient. Dr. Chad Kirksick, you, I don't know you know Chad, he, he taught me that a long time ago. He goes, listen, that's not an efficient way to You get burn fuel. a lot of calories to convert the protein into carbs. You do yeah. burn, yes. Um, but to use it as a fuel source, it's not something that's really gonna get in the way. So that's why you see a lot of bodybuilders diet on higher protein. They remove the things like carbs that secrete insulin and and fats and things of that nature to get it down. So I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I don't know who your coach is, but it's cool that he's trying something new um, and, and experimenting because we do that all yep. the time. Definitely. So uh, good. who's got the next question? Well, we're going to the next person. Um, we had a good first day. Um, this is day one. Bill, go ahead and, and break it down for our listeners real quick on what your talk was over. Yeah, I basically summarized our latest study on rapid fat loss and how my my belief is you don't want to do a fat loss phase quickly you don't want to be aggressive so we did a study that kind of challenged that thinking and changed my mind or at least makes me now more open to the idea of a aggressive fat loss phase um, but the other principles still apply high protein resistance training and I would say as long as the phase is relatively short, you can feel pretty good about losing fat and maintaining a lot of your actual protein mass or your, your skeletal muscle mass. Yeah, so that was I, the... I know at some point we want to have you on the podcast and we'll talk about bits and pieces of that. Uh, that'll be good content. Are we ready with the next question? Go ahead, Jace. Uh, so I have a few questions here. Um, I'm jumping real quick, so I'm thinking about the flyer. I'm good here. Yeah. Uh, it's for, um, uh, for Bill. Uh, do men lose more muscle than women 
uh, because men naturally carry more muscle mass that's easier to be extended, and women have less uh, muscle mass and a closer basal uh, skeletal muscle uh, weight or, uh, or size. Um, is, is that why they, they don't lose as much during the dieting phase? Can you, can you repeat it? Yeah. yeah, so let me repeat the question. Do men lose more muscle mass than women because they start with, they have a greater amount of muscle mass to start with? <clears throat> Um, and I think there's two, two answers. One, I don't know, but I think, yeah, there's two, there's two answers that I can think of. That is the first one. If they have 100 units of muscle and a female has 50 units of muscle, they have more units to lose. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we know that males diet testosterone kind of goes to the tank. So testosterone drops significantly in males. Females don't have a lot of testosterone to drop. So then is that part of it? I don't know. But if testosterone levels are key to maintaining muscle mass, if that's true, then I think we have to also look at that specific hormone as part of the reason. And um, uh, knowing our body, we use uh, more extendable, extendable fuel sources, uh, like glycogen first, uh, before optimally using fat cells. What would be a, an ideal time, you think, for a study to see more long-term fat loss research assuming the participants are starting at caloric maintenance. All right, so rephrase, ask that one more so, time. Uh, so uh, so study, we prioritize study. glycogen, we prioritize carbs. Well, uh, yeah, so the studies you showed, you showed this like four, two, four weeks, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, and, uh, and normally the body uses the immediate fuel sources like glycogen first for the fat cells. So what would be an ideal time to actually see like, uh, an, op like an ideal time range for you to see like long-term fat loss, like four months, Five months for like uh, for your clients, what you talked about. Yeah. So, um, what would be? Uh, I'm going to repeat the question. What would be the ideal time frame for a fat loss study, with the knowledge that carbs are pri primarily burned for exercise? So, I, I do want to say one thing: the the intensity of the exercise is what dictates what fuel source will be used. So, if I go out for a walk. Um, or as we're all sitting here now, we're burning mostly fat for energy. So think of the energy that we're burning, that's, that is dictated by the intensity of the exercise. So resistance training, since that's what we all do, that's primarily burning carbs because that's a high intensity activity. But there are, you know, a, a light jog, a walk, that's mo fat is mostly fueling that, a little bit of carbohydrates. Uh, when we're sprinting, almost pure carbs fueling that. Um, in terms of the ideal length, um, I'm, gonna, I'm not, I'm not going to answer it in the way that you like, but I'm going to answer it the way that I want to answer it. Um, for, other, for people who aren't bodybuilding competitors, and for that question, I'm going to have to refer to these guys. I almost want to have this, don't think of your life as dieting. What's the lifestyle that I could live where I maintain a, the lowest body fat imaginable or possible for me to still enjoy going out to eat at times, getting snacks with the kids or something. But even within that, I believe we're gonna have to have periods where we do diet. The optimal, I, the, the length I would say is not long. And that's why I'm really liking, I didn't go into this, but this rapid fat loss study that I just did, maybe that's the new model for these lifestyle people. Get in get out. You lose the fat. Now let's just try to maintain it. And if you're like me, you won't be able to maintain it. I've never been able to. Um, I want to get in and get out. And I feel very, very good. So before I would say, don't be in it um, long. Um, just try to make it more of a lifestyle. Now with the data that we just put, I'm very open to the idea of like, punch me in the face with the diet for a very short period of time, aggressive, and then get back out. I, I don't know if that answered it, but that, that's my uh, thoughts. And uh, Jason, uh, I noticed most of my PCOS clients, their upper body tends to be more muscular than the lower body. You know, same thing, uh, of course, and they therefore more angiogenic receptors on torsos and legs. Uh, I was wondering if you noticed anything with your clients. So <clears throat> the question was, you're noticing that PCOS clients are more muscular in the upper body than the lower, um, but then you followed up with saying there's more angiogenic receptors in the lower body. So oh, in, in the upper body. In the upper body, yeah. So have I seen, have I seen uh, that? Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of some clients right now that I have, and I haven't really seen that as the case. Um, 
No, it's not something that I've really. Uh, what, what were you thinking was causing it? Did you have a? Did you? Well, I mean, there more androgens flowing bloodstream. Yeah. Uh, they so the more the androgens were attaching the receptor. Overall body, like women, they normally flow by dominance. Yeah. Just more of body dominance. Uh, yeah. These cases I've seen. Yeah. That, that aren't. You know, I haven't seen it, but honestly, um, that's a good point. Like, just to bring up to anyone who's kind of helping people with this especially if they want to get on the stage interesting I, i'm thinking of my clients a lot of them have it their bodies just aren't very developed at all do you know what i mean i'm not i haven't i don't have an elite athlete right now and i guess i could probably see it better if i had a figure compared to really elite a lot of my women who have been come to me are more lifestyle and they're kind of just a little bit softer from head to toe um so i haven't seen it but that's actually a really good point and it's a bigger factor as to why we need to fix it, especially in the competitors so they don't end up top heavy. So, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't really noticed it with mine. And uh, I know a few of these who like the, uh, who like progesterone around the one and two uh, range during the fulfilling phase. Would you recommend doing a chase barrier during uh, year round or just after I relate to course? Yeah, year I go back and forth with this and okay. here's how I do it. It kind of ends up being tailored to a client. Um, so when I first bring in Chaseberry, if someone's progesterone is very low, I just leave it in all 30 days. I'm trying to get that signal to work the best I can. Once I get a period back and it's been back for maybe one or two months, then you can do where you're basically like the last four or the 14 days before the bleed, you can, you can bring in the Chaseberry where it's supposed to be spiking and then pull it out the first day of bleed as the estrogen is supposed to be surging and the uh, progesterone drops off. But um, to, to reestablish a cycle, I usually use it all 30 days. Um, and someone like the girl who we had here, who was really low at 0.5, and I, I'm, I'm pointing at people, they don't know. Uh, what I'm saying is I, I gave a presentation on the PCOS, and I, and I showed the, um, the lab work. And her progesterone was 0.5, right, and her, and her estrogen was high. So in that case, I would have used Chase Berry all 30. I would have used it every day to try to really get that cranking. And to segue off that, do you, during the filter phase, do you look for one or two, or is it matter if you You know what? That's, I, I like to follow the range. Okay. So if they're in range in the follicular phase, I'm okay with it. I, I don't put a lot of, I guess, emphasis on the follicular phase with progesterone, just because a lot of times we're looking at athletes and we, the progesterone tanks, and you might already know this, but we want the luteal phase numbers so that, you know, that's when it spikes. And if there's no spike, we know there's, there's an impairment, right? So we, I don't like to look at labs in the follicular phase really anyways, because then I'm like, well, progesterone is supposed to be on the lower end. And if it's one or two or 0.5, okay, we're in range, but we can't catch that spike. So I don't even really put a lot of emphasis on follicular, but it, for me personally, I would just like to see it in range. I'm, I'm way more worried about like the luteal phase and are we are we getting above that 10 or are we getting a regular cycle and things like that. Did you, did you keep Progon-B in for so, that long too? So the question was would I keep Progon-B in? And so for people that don't know, that is a bioidentical progesterone. Um, and so I use that as like the next step. So usually I use Chase Berry because it's a natural herb. Progon B would come in if after 10 weeks, nothing is moving. Like say everything, a lot of times you'll see labs, everything's looking a little better. Cholesterol's looking better. Liver value's looking better. <clears throat> but for some reason, progesterone's not coming up. They're living a stressful life. Um, they might just be deficient for some other genetic variant. Then I bring in the Progon B. And honestly, I do the same thing. If, if um, they haven't had a period, I'm gonna leave it in until I get the period. So I'm gonna do 30 days. Just try to get it going and then once you get the period and you've had that two or three times I might try that with someone but here's the thing when they're a lot of times these are stressors and you just can't get all the stress down so then I like to just leave it in all, all times yeah so yeah yep well there you go there you go so your progesterone is really kind of off kilter anyways like I know you know this um, so that is basically helping basically put a band-aid on what that is doing to your negative feedback so in that case I would leave someone on it full-time too so that's being done right in my opinion yeah 
Okay, while, while we go to the next question, and have your flag Jason down um, so he can be ready with the next one. I do want to circle back to rapid fat loss and just tell a real quick story. So I got COVID back in March, I believe, and had zero appetite for about 10 days. So I ate like 500 calories. And knowing um, some, of the research, some of the research that Bill has put out and rapid fat loss that I know I've done, and Jason, I know you do it with clients as well, I got COVID and had zero appetite. I also just happened to be pretty fat when I got COVID. So I was like 222 pounds and it was a perfect time for me to just know, have some shakes every day, eat some protein. And I probably had five, 600 calories for like 10 days. I got enough fat on me, I wasn't really hungry, but I wasn't hungry because I was sick anyway. And I dropped all the way down to 212. And what I noticed was, is then I reverse dieted back out and I, I scaled my calories back up over the course of a week and started to slowly train and things of that nature. I stayed 212 for about, I don't know, whatever, until a couple months ago. So like four or five months, I stayed that way. And it was a perfect example of rapid fat loss. I just wasn't exercising because I had COVID. But it just goes to show, like, I think maybe this new model is, and, and I'm not saying I'm a proponent of telling one just go diet really hard, super low calorie for two weeks. But maybe once a year, it's not a bad idea. So that's just kind of a little bit of feedback on, you know, even getting sick. It just goes to show, like, you keep protein up and then reverse out. There are places where you can lose fat pretty fast. So uh, who's got the next question? Okay, go ahead. Speak up loud. Uh, so my question is for Bill. Um, most of our clients are gym pop. And so with that, one of the challenges comes that when we start with them, they have no idea how many calories they can eat. I noticed that in your study, uh, you took two weeks to find maintenance. What method did you use to find the maintenance? So the, 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 the true answer is an army of research assistants. Can you repeat that? Yeah, so yeah, the um, question, uh, in my study, in all my studies, we get our subjects, which are general population type people, actually a little more serious than that usually, but how do we get them to calculate their maintenance calories? And the, the, the answer was we have a large research staff that will educate them on how to do that, meaning that they, you know, schedule an hour appointment, talk about what carbs, protein, fats are, you know, exactly probably what you would do, uh, and then show them how MyFitnessPal works, and we send them spreadsheets. So the way that we're able to do that is through a very intensive educational process. Now that's part of the job that's very difficult for people in your situation because time is money. Where in my case, you know, we, we just, that's part of the research, that is the job. Um, that's how we do it. Did you, did, did you want any other advice on how to get them to that space or not necessarily? Uh, well, the question that I was wanting to ask further along the lines of that is uh, with people that we have that are maybe not just wanting to do a, a bodybuilding show or a major cut for an event, a wedding or something, when you have them in a surplus because they're in a muscle building phase and you're looking at pulling uh, like the 35% uh, from maintenance calories and they're in a surplus right now, how do you, how would you calculate back down the maintenance or do you pull the 35% from the surplus of calories that they've been in? So what I like to do is a, a two week period where they should be in maintenance and base, and then and what we do in our studies, we give them a scale and they go home and they weigh themselves every day. So we can kind of really dial in. If they didn't gain weight or lose weight, over, you know, on average, of course, there's gonna be daily fluctuations. That's how we estimate uh, maintenance calorie levels. And I think that's the most accurate way on the earth to do that. I, there are some people who say, no, it's better to get your resting metabolic rate measured and then factor in a you know an activity factor so multiply that by something I, I that's better than nothing then in fact that's fine it's still not as good as what they're actually eating and their actual body weights there's no estimation there other than their calories that they may be estimating incorrectly so if somebody's in a surplus i've never we've never i've never had that come up um, what I would still do is I would take somebody out of a theoretical surplus, bring them back to maintenance, because it, to me, everything revolves around maintenance. Uh, and then I would go from there. So I would take two weeks or a week. I know my clients, uh, even my wife argues with me, just give me a week. Don't make me do two. They're always in a hurry to diet. So at least a week 
said, let me, let me at least give a very good ballpark of what maintenance is. And I'm, my research hinges on that maintenance estimation because when I say a 35 or 25% caloric deficit, that means something to me. Like that's, that's, we're not just, we're not ballparking it. That is tailored to every subject's own personal data for two weeks, their own macros and their own, and their own um, body weight. I, I can add something to that too. So the one thing is a lot of people get caught up in numbers and not saying that you are, I'm just saying in general, people get caught up in numbers on what's a surplus, what's maintenance, what's a deficit. And if you remember my presentation I just gave, it's really hard to know, am I really at 2,500? Is that really my maintenance? So if you're working with someone to go back to a bodybuilder, because your question was, what if we have someone wanting to do a show? How do we know, right? Well, they should be trying to gain lean, first of all. And I'm talking about mostly natural athletes and things of that nature. So my goal for natural athletes to gain about a pound a month is okay. And at some point we're gonna have to shave some of the chubbiness off at some point, right? But about a pound a month is okay. And I know that they're just slightly above maintenance to be able to keep gaining muscle, but they're also gaining fat with that pound. Like it's not all muscle. So I know generally that they're just barely above, they're just slightly above maintenance. So when I go to start someone on a diet, Assuming insulin sensitivity is good and those things are taken care of, like I talked about in my presentation, you can, you can default to, and a lot of this comes into the art of coaching, was what we do. I, we can probably both look at our client's macros and just know what to drop them to because we know that client. But if you're trying to show someone how to do it, there's nothing wrong if they've got their calories up where they should be and they're growing lean, drop 500 calories, drop 400 calories and add a little bit of cardio. That should be a good starting point. And the other thing you have to factor in too is, are they gonna have a free meal every week? Are they gonna have a high carb day? That's a huge wrench that's thrown into the engine. So that has to be a factor because now you're looking at, you know, six day deficit, maybe a day of maintenance. You know what I'm saying? So if you really think about it, you throw the cheat meal out, well now all, 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 of, all of a sudden, their maintenance for the week goes to a different number. You see what I'm saying? So there's all these different factors that go in. But if I had to just tell somebody I would, you know, that's growing lean, create a 500 calorie deficit, 400 calorie deficit, throw 15 minutes of lists in a few days a week, and there you go. Like I've done that with multiple people, but to me, Jason, it's the art of coaching because you start there and then you make the adjustments yeah. along the way that's most important, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't really, I put more focus on what people bring to the table when it with their with their baseline or their maintenance so it's kind of like what what bill's talking about too you know like um he might he tracks it you said for a week or two weeks two weeks <laughs> in our research studies in practice yeah i i can live with a week but. so i just i like to get the info on <clears throat> where they think their macros are if they don't give me it i like to say what their diet is and then i kind of estimate it and go from there but like you said you know you start somewhere and then it's like okay well if they're dropping um and we're trying to find maintenance we obviously need to add calories so i kind of adjust from there so that is more in the art of it i don't i don't stress over where's their maintenance you know i, I kind of put some stock in what they're telling me and then go from there and then we just adjust based on what we're seeing so yeah. i i do want to tell and, and i don't know if this was part of your question but i know other people out there thinking so what if someone's gen pop and they're just starting and they don't really track their food and they don't really understand where to start, but you want to start their diet. How do you know what, what calories and macros to start them on? So if anyone listening wants to write this down, this is a foolproof method that, that I came up with years ago. And I, I use this when I have to. These days, most people that come to me, I'm pretty fortunate. They're already tracking their food. I don't work with a lot of people yeah. that don't. But when you're first starting out, or maybe, maybe that's what you get, there's nothing wrong with that. So what I like to do is I like to, and this is gen pop, not bodybuilders. What's their goal weight? That's step one. So if you have the mom that wants to get from 180 to 120, for example, right? Ultimately, that's her long-term goal. What's her goal weight? 120, set her protein right there. Just set it at 120, okay? That never go wrong there. Um, step two, what's her calories? Now you take her goal weight, and here's, here's where it gets interesting. Goal weight times 10 to 12 is going to be for, for cutting. So this is just gonna give you a starting point. So 120 times 10 to 12 is gonna be your starting. Take it times 12 because you wanna create slight, a slight deficit. So it's probably gonna be somewhere around 1400 calories to start if she wants to be 120. 
um, take it times 15 for maintenance and that's what I would do to see for two weeks if they drop or if they stay the same so our goal weight times 15 would be maintenance and anything over that like times 16 would be to grow okay so maybe it's 13 to 15 is maintenance that's just a good easy way to figure out what's their maintenance for a couple weeks because really it comes down to you watching to see there's no other way for people that don't track unless they're going to get to a lab and be hooked up and like it's just not going to happen on our end as coaches so anyway that's feedback for me that's that's worked over the years who's who's got the next question okay speak up so just to add to Um, no, repeat it. Oh yeah, the question was: Is there a reason why um, I would use saw palmetto instead of stinging nettles? <clears throat> so, um, I assume you're talking about with like hyperandrogenism, like with my presentation. Okay. Um, well, I don't mind stinging nettles, and I do use that for certain situations, um, like if SHBG is really high. Um, but in these cases since it does drive SHBG down, um, that could free up more androgen. Does that make sense? So I don't use it in these cases because it could bring SHBG down. But if you have a stress case and SHBG is really high and they don't have hyperandrogenism, nettles is a great way to bring down SHBG. But in this case, I just like the salt palmetto so I don't have that SHBG fallout, which could then make free tests go even higher. I do have an interesting Saul Palmetto story real quick. Um, if you want to get ready for the next question. Um, one time, uh, Leslie, we, she took a lot of Saul Palmetto and I had to go back and research this and find out what happened, but her boobs got huge. And I mean like huge, huge, like it looked like she had implants all of a sudden and she doesn't. And she wasn't gaining weight. Like this was over the course of like four to six weeks. And she said they hurt, and I mean, they were big. So like, it really looked like she got implants. And I went back and looked at the research, and it's used, it was used and um, studied girls in China to help enhance breast size. No shit, never heard this. No, I never did either. And she was like, my boobs hurt so Why don't so we bad. just put that under our supplement line? And <laughs> no, <laughs> listen, so I was about to say, Jason and I are about to create a new supplement, ladies, if, if you want to enhance boob size. I mean, shit. <laughs> right? Um, I, How much was she taking? It was like a thousand megs a day. Okay. So what did she start it for? You know, I can't remember. Okay. Because it's not remember. something the women take a ton. Of, like well, you know, in, take in a lot. high amounts, it can actually bind up some estrogen. I think that's what it was. Okay. And we were we were I think trying that. Not, not that I was having her do that. Yeah. Uh, we read that, and it was in a supplement of mine, uh, Max Test back in the day. Okay. I didn't know. I put it in there because I thought, oh, high amounts, it'll help yeah. bind up some estrogen and help keep you a little leaner. Um, which is what it's supposed to do, but yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Interesting Saul Palmetto story. Never told yeah. that one before. <laughs> so who's got the next question? Okay, speak up. So my question is around insulin resistance, and I'm thinking about more of like the lean individual that has it. I am insulin resistant to some degree. So my question is, at what point after trying to manage stress, because for me, I see the fluctuations in mine when I'm stressed. Like if I have a lot going on, it's easily 100. When I don't, 86, 92, which still not great. But at what point are you like, all right, it's not just stress, you need to drop carbs. And my insulin is high, but it's less than 10. I think it was like 8.6. Yeah, so that, that's a, the question is, is, is when do you know it's time for an insulin sensitivity reset and to drop carbs? Um, and you see it's always high when you're stressed. Now, is it high post meal or is it just high in the morning? haven't tested it post meal in a while yeah in the morning it's high after a lift it is not it i respond normally to that okay 
I haven't done post-prandials in a while, though. Yeah, so do that. that that's my recommendation. I'm going to hand it over to Jason because he's really good with this. Um, try three hours post-meal. Don't do two and a half. Like, I, I think I had that in my presentation. I need to change that. It needs to be three. I've noticed a big difference in two and a half to three. I've seen people go from 101 to 89 just in that 30 minutes. So I'm real big with three hours post. Measure that. Um, and then are you taking cordies at night? Yeah, cordies, and then I have both of your GKs. And yeah. Them. Yeah, yeah. So that that's just real quick because I talked about it earlier. I'm going to hand this over to Jason. But typically, if you're like me, you'll know you're start, starting to get chubby. Like it's so, time. It's like that, bad, yeah. that, that to me is my sign. I'm like, here's the man boobs. It's time. So um, I'm going to hand this over to Jason, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, John, John did a good job of covering some of this. Um, I was going to ask, like, are you trying to diet and it's not happening or you're in a gaining phase? I'm in a gaining phase and my body pump has been totally fine. Okay. Are you, are you um, still getting pumps in the gym? Yes. See, pumps will fade with insulin sensitivity phase. So that's another one of my, like, big ones that I watch. Um, so here's the deal, too. Like, 85 or 86 to 92, that's not bad. That's that's okay. Like that's about where I'm at. I can stay really lean year round. Um, I I have type two diabetics in the family and things like that, so I run a little higher. Um, and I'm like you, like in stress or in my mornings, always like a hundred or a little higher. But then my postprandial is fine. So these are all like ranges, and all these things are nice to look at. But if you're not having any problem with it, and you're not running crazy high blood sugar numbers, I think you're fine. If you were starting to gain a lot of fat, losing pumps, maybe getting really sleepy, um, all those things, I would say you maybe you need to reset. But based on everything you're telling me, I think you might have a little dawn phenomenon like myself. I think you know genetics, yes, would allow you to probably become a type two if you had a shitty lifestyle. Me too, but we're not in that ballpark, and I think you're good to keep doing what you're doing. So, this one. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> okay, so we've got a question from the live stream. This is from Natalie. <clears throat> Great question here. This is for Jason, um, and I like this. This is a really good question. For an elite athlete who's lean, well-developed, and wants to stay on hormonal birth control, with lab work looking good but room to boost testosterone, free test is at the lower end range of 1.0. What would you use to boost test to help progress in the off-season? Anything outside of B vitals and boron before considering HRT? Hmm. So they've already apparently used B Vital, which is one of my go-tos, and they've used Boron. So then what are some other things? I think your hormone optimizer works pretty damn well with women, right? Especially with Jumpstart. Yeah, and you combine it with Jumpstart, the one from New Ethics, and I think you'd have a women combo there. Um, let's see. They did the Boron. They did – you know, you could you could take a look and see if your SHBG is, is um, high. I don't know how intensive your, you know, you say, I think they say good labs, but I mean, I don't know if they've looked at SHBG. Not every doctor does, especially if it's ran by a doctor. If that's high, um, then that's going to bind up your test. And so you could use stinging nettles, which we were talking about a little bit uh, earlier. That's like 250 migs, two, three times a day, and that will help bring the SHBG down along with de-stressing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, if you've already uh, exhausted the, the first two you talked about, I would try jumpstart with um, hormone optimizer and um, make sure your diet has enough healthy fats in it. Uh, you need fats to basically, you know, manufacture these hormones. So make sure you're not still low low fat dieting um, in the off season. And then real quick, just a follow-up um, for those of, those of you looking at testosterone on labs. We covered this on the podcast not long ago. Make sure you get your labs done. You know, wake up and then go in and get them done. Don't wait six hours, seven hours, eight hours, because those can fluctuate. Um, you know, we're talking about someone not on HRT. Natural testosterone levels can fluctuate two to 400 nanograms per deciliter. I've never seen it fluctuate 400, but I've, I've, in the data I've read, like it has. Um, but if you get it read, like say if you wake up at six in the morning, you get your labs done at eight, that's great. If you go get them done at two o'clock in the afternoon, you're gonna get a reading that's gonna say it's a lot lower than it normally is. So with that being said, anyone that, that gets your testosterone levels done, make sure you do it, wake up and go get it done. We've got a good question uh, here for Bill. I don't know where this one came from. 
I think it was the live feed. I think it came from the live yeah, stream. Yeah, Diane. Diane. Diane Gear. Okay. Yeah. Here. Uh, the question is, Bill, what are your recommendations for those coming off a rapid fat loss diet? Great question. Yeah, so I actually have data, which I presented, but I didn't stress it. So I have data from our study in that two-week period. So if you remember the outcomes, body fat was maintained. So even after the two-week aggressive fat loss phase, the next two weeks, the subjects were still in a slight deficit. I think it was 13%. Let's just call it 10, 10 to 15%. So it went from about 40 to about 10 to 15 and that jump in calories, while still in a deficit relative to baseline, maintained fat loss. In fact, they actually increased, they went from 1.1 to 1.2% fat loss. So it maintained fat loss. And we know that the, um, the dry fat-free mass rebounded well, whereas they didn't lose any. So I think the answer is based on this one study, come back out of this aggressive phase and for the next two weeks, go back to near maintenance, but still in a slight deficit. And then I have a question that somebody texted me that was here and that had to leave. Okay, who, while we get ready to read this question, who else has a question here? We're gonna go for another, another five to 10 and then shut it down so we can all go train. So yeah, if you wanna get ready, go ahead, Bill. All right, so this question's for one or both of you. How, do you, how would you address scope of practice if we are not doctors and technically should not recommend supplements or diet plans according to NASM or food therapy according to NASM? Um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure um, what NASM is saying in their certification. I, I assume you took some sort of nutritional certification um, with NASM. Um, there's nothing wrong with recommending supplements. Um, you know, I, I think... I really don't know what they're getting at now the diet part of it a lot of states do have laws that say you can tell someone their macros but you can't build them a diet um, so I'll be honest with you um, we all operate online um, you know I, I don't know that that law is being enforced and so take it you can follow a, a very um, and first off, if you know I was an attorney, I'm not speaking as an attorney right here. I'm no longer <laughs> licensed. Um, this is strictly as a coach. Um, you can liberally interpret the law or you can basically uh, interpret it to uh, be very, very strict. And so I guess that's what you're going to have to um, uh, decide for yourself. But you will tie your hands and what you, who you can help if um, you only stick to macros. But that's on the diet side. I've never seen an issue with uh, recommending supplementation um, to to any clients. I've, I've never really read a law that says you can't. You, you've do been that. to all the functional um, med conferences and, and been through all the courses yeah. and everything, so you can do yeah. all of that. Um, so I, I don't know. I've never seen. I've just never seen a, a law that says you can't recommend supplements. Yeah. Have you? No, but in um, so in, in Missouri, it's against the law to actually tell someone exactly what to eat yeah so that's what have, i was saying yeah J jacob Clessons is all right all right correct our yeah. registered dietitian if someone needs a meal plan i pay him we charge extra he writes the diet plan he sends it to him i give macros and i tell people here's a list of foods that you can eat yep. um so this is where they're not trying to skirt around this by the way folks it's different for every state what i tell my clients is here's a list of food it, it, you can use all kinds of trackers. Here's the macros that I want you to hit. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Same with supplementation. Now, with that being said, you don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a registered dietitian. Some of the most foremost experts in, in, uh, in uh, cholesterol, by the way, are people that never went and got a degree or an MD degree, like nothing tied to that. They're engineers tons and tons and tons of people who are engineers who understand the breakdown of certain you know, systems of the body and they're experts in their field and people actually listen to them. So with that being said, you have to be, care be careful if you're prescribing or if you're recommending based off of your experience. There's a very, very fine line. It's just like if you want to, if you want to be involved in the research community, if you want to be a researcher, you have to have a degree that involves being able to do research. For example, you don't see Jason and I going and doing research because we don't have the qualifications for that. We can suggest 
cool studies, refeed studies like you and I did, we can suggest those things. We're not trying to say we're researchers. Just because we're suggesting a certain macro split because we're experts at what we do or supplementation that, you know, been to conferences to learn how functional med helps fix these areas. When you tell someone, hey, this is what I recommend, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There can also be abuse of that too when people start trying to become what they're not. So it, it's a balance. And there's really no other way to answer that, in my opinion. You know, one other thing came to mind while you were talking. I don't know, you know, if, if this is what they were seeing, but you uh, you shouldn't be pulling someone off, like, their prescription meds. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, we sometimes run into that where someone wants to come off their birth control. Um, and so, you know, if someone asks me their opinion, uh, my opinion of birth control, I'll give them the, the negatives and positives, tell them how it's affecting their body, and then um, I'll say, you know, you're supposed to run this by your doctor before we come off of this, but if we want, if you want to come off, here's how I would do it supplement-wise, food-wise, etc. But I always cover myself to say, hey, that should be something you should discuss with your doctor before you come off of it, but I'll help guide you to get, you know, to where you need to be so you don't have, uh, you know, like, you know, the post-birth control rebound um, with, with PCOS, things like that. So that you want to be careful about. Um, but yeah, supplements, I've just never heard that's an issue. So the diet thing, I think we both covered. So, And the other thing too, we see it go the opposite way. How many times have we had clients that their doctor tells them, hey, I want you to do this diet or I want you to do that. They've taken probably just a handful of nutrition, basic nutrition classes, yet they're trying to give diet advice. Like Vegetarian's a big one. Go vegetarian. Yeah, go vegetarian. Mm. Like do all this stuff, right? And we, have, we see it on the coach's side. They're trying to tell them, hey, like, your doctor has you on this script, but I want you to change it to this and that. Like, no one's advocating that. We're talking about fix, fixing issues with natural supplementation and diet that you go to conferences like this one, right, and conferences, you know, Nutridine and others that we've been to, to actually learn from. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We have one more? Yeah, and an online question. Okay, and then, and then we need to wrap it up. So let's... That let's, was probably let's quick, but okay let's do this one Jason okay. this one is to you since your metabolic adaptations class I've been searching the web for a great alternative for court ease and Medipure since we can't get it in the Netherlands besides ashwagandha would you suggest anything else to use instead yes um, so Medipure is a phase one and phase two um, methylation product so and if you can't get that I think the best way you could get this done is glutathione um, you could use liposomal hopefully they can get that there um, and acetylcysteine um, here in the states it's finally been well I don't know what's going on with the FDA and that, but um, uh, we are having trouble sourcing it but N-acetylcysteine will help create glutathione um, you're going to want to get the B vitamins. Uh, I would go ahead and just get the methyl donors, like the methyl 12, the methyl, uh, methylfolate. Those will help um, methylation as well. And even if you're not uh, one of the MTHFR people who, who doesn't um, uh, absorb folate and things well and, and need the methyl, it's okay to take the methyl form. So all of our products have the methyl forms of those B vitamins. Um, magnesium, zinc, I would add and maybe a good quercetin um, and curcumin. So you're gonna have to add a few different things, but you know, if you really wanna crank methylation, that's where I would head. Um, as, as cordies, is there an alternative other than ashwagandha? Ashwagandha is a really good one. Um, let's see, anything else? Well, I mean, rhodiola works. It's also another adaptogen. Um, you could add that with ashwagandha. Um, I don't know if it's a controlled substance in the Netherlands, but here you can get something called Phenobut. Um, it acts to calm the body. Um, it can be slightly addictive, so you would want to cycle that two or three days on, one day off. Um, maybe about 500 milligrams a day of the Phenobut, but that will help bring someone down to and help them sleep and help them really get that anxiety lower, which is what Cordy's does. Um, anything else for metabolism? Phosphatidylserine. Um, you could add that in. Uh, that's in the cordies. So I think that really covers it. Ashwagandha would do really well, and then the things that I gave you with the Metapure would help. So to sub in for Metapure. All right. 
And and good luck getting some of these things right now because the industry is upside down. As Jason and I both know, trying to get products done, like it's a hot mess. So hopefully that person's able to get what they need, but trying to source some of that stuff is brutal. Yeah, brutal right now. Okay, we've got one last question. Who has it? Where's the mic? Go ahead. Speak up. Um, so when testing your blood Okay, so the question was, when testing your blood sugar, is it best to do it at the same time every morning? So, like I said, I like to get away from testing in the morning. You can, but you need to test other times of the day if it's outside of range, right? So, like, wake up, don't, don't do anything that's gonna cause stress to go up. You wanna just go ahead and do it right away. So if you think about it, if you get up, you don't have food in you and things of that nature, if you get up and start doing a lot of stuff, especially if you're in a hurry, you start rushing around. I think you talked about leaving to run to work and you start stressing, blood sugar is going to start going up. So just wake up, wipe your finger off with, with uh, an alcohol wipe, prick it, wipe it off one more time, and then measure. So literally just kind of wake up, go to the bathroom, walk into the kitchen and do it. But I'd much rather see three hours post-meal, post-carb meal. Like that's, that gives you the true shot of how your body is secreting insulin to drive blood sugar down after eating a meal because you're in a fasted state when you wake up. Right, so we've seen some pretty interesting things um, during a prep. You just did a, a like very low or no carb phase for three or four days, and your blood sugar shot up an insane amount. Right, so kind of talk about why we see that happen. Um, mainly, it's a stress situation. Do you, do you remember the macros? Um, Maybe it was real low carb. Damn. Yeah, it was fifty carbs. It was yeah. fifty. That's all I was giving myself. So he lowered carbs. Yeah. But his blood sugar went up. Yeah. Um, it's a stress response, in my opinion, is what's going on there. Um, you know, carbs help serotonin production. And so, you know, you take that away and you take that away, you get more and more anxious. And if you're prone to it, um, which more I am, uh, I already have low serotonin. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stress response. Um, and then the cortisol just kind of rises on top of everything else you're doing. The walking, I was doing the cardio, you know, the training. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't always, you know, go the direction you want it to go. Yeah. So. Very, very good Q&A today. This is fun. We're going to be back for day two. So for myself, Bill, and Jason, we're out of here. See you guys.